Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Dr. Karen Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. On today's program, we'll jump back into my conversation with Katie Hurley, LCSW, author of No More Mean Girls. Katie and I talk about the ramifications of kids being on their phones all night, the culture of busy, the debate regarding praise, and how all of this relates to girls' self-esteem. But first, let's listen to a short clip from the movie Mean Girls, because it obviously relates to everything we've been talking about with Katie and everything we'll talk about today. Having lunch with the plastics was like leaving the actual world and entering girl world. And girl world had a lot of rules. You can't wear a tank top two days in a row, and you can only wear your hair in a ponytail once a week. So I guess you pick today. Oh, and we only wear jeans or track pants on Fridays. Now, if you break any of these rules, you can't sit with us at lunch. Well, I mean, not just you, like any of us. Okay, like if I was wearing jeans today, I would be sitting over there with the art freaks. <laughs> oh, and we always vote before we ask someone to eat lunch with us because you have to be considerate of the rest of the group. Well, I mean, you wouldn't buy a skirt without asking your friends first if it looks good on you. I wouldn't? Right. Oh, and it's the same with guys. Like, you may think you like someone, but you could be wrong. Regina, we have to talk to you. Is butter a carb? Yes. Gina, you're wearing sweatpants. It's Monday. So? So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Whatever. Those rules aren't real. They were real that day I wore a vest, because that vest was disgusting. You can't sit with us! And now, back to my conversation with Katie Hurley. So Katie, another topic you bring up in the book that really grabbed my attention was sleep deprivation. And the reason this grabbed my attention was because I've had Dr. Leonard Sachs on the program before, and he's very concerned with one of the titles of his book is The Collapse of Parenting. And one of the things we're seeing is that kids, for example, are oftentimes being diagnosed with ADHD and other kinds of anxiety and so forth, and then prescribed medication. And what we're finding is that sometimes the structure in the home is literally so amiss that they're not going to bed until midnight when they're in eighth grade, and then they're on their phone till two, three in the morning on Insta. And so what is appearing to look like ADHD or anxiety is really just sleep deprivation. And you bring that up as well. Yes, because I specialize in anxiety disorders. And one thing that I see over and over again is that girls and boys alike come to me very highly anxious, really struggling in school, struggling at home, and they're not getting enough sleep. And part of the trick of anxiety, of course, as you know, is that the minute your head hits the pillow is when the anxiety center in your brain just is on red alert and all the worries (laughs) start coming out big time because that's when kids 
slow down. You know, they're busy all day long and they finally slow down. So there is a piece of it that is hard to weed out in terms of getting anxious kids on a regular sleep schedule. But in general, one thing I find over and over again is that kids are not getting enough sleep, whether or not they have a diagnosis of anything or whether or not they end up in my office, they're sleep deprived. And part of that is they're playing sports until very late at night at a very young age. Part of it is technology use for the kids who are using technology. Part of it is you know, overloaded homework loads. You know, parents are constantly told, hey, it's really healthy if your kid has an after-school activity like a sport or a theater program or a music program of some sort. So you should definitely sign up for those things because that's how you have a well-rounded, healthy, empathic child. But then on top of that, they have homework loads that are higher than they've ever been in the last 30 years. So they're really struggling to get to bed on time. And what we know about the human brain is that it really thrives on sleep and it needs sleep and it needs exercise and it needs water. And those are three things that seem to be really a struggle for kids right now because even the kids who are playing sports are doing such highly competitive sports that they come with a certain level of stress and pressure. So I always say to parents, you have to think about healthy exercise versus high pressure exercise because they'll say to me, well, but they play all these sports and that's why they're not going to bed at night, but they're getting the exercise. So that's good. So that should calm the anxiety. But the truth is, if they're so stressed out and under pressure about the sports that they're playing and winning and losing and being the best and how they're getting rated, and then that's keeping them up until 10, 11 o'clock at night because they don't get home until late and then they have to do their homework on top of that, well, then that's actually not healthy exercise. It's very complicated sleep deprivation among kids right now. You know, one thing I do find over and over again is that parents struggle to get kids to bed at a reasonable hour. And part of that is that kids fight bedtime. Um, you know, and teenagers, the teenage brain wants to stay up a little bit later. And tweens just want to fight it and want to be like teenagers. But we have to be able to set healthy limits and to really educate kids. I mean, I find when I break it down for kids and I really talk to them about what sleep deprivation actually does to their brains, when they can conceptualize it and they can understand how important it is to get sleep versus just being barked at or lectured at, they actually take a much more active role in trying to set a healthy sleep schedule for themselves. That's such a good point. I am concerned that some of the structure that seemed pretty and it's it's hard to say. I don't want to make some big generational statement, but it does seem that bedtimes were a thing <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And it whether the kids are fighting harder or the parents are fried themselves. So at the end of the day, they don't have it in them to force some of the structure and to implement some of the structure in the home. But I'm, I'm curious what you're thinking in the hierarchy in the home. Are you seeing some breakdown that might be related to the children's anxiety or what What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think it's complicated and I think it's difficult to, I mean, it's useful to go back in the past and say, hey, what worked and what didn't, but it's also really difficult to compare. Like you mentioned earlier, this is the first generation of parents that's up against this technology thing, you know, and even with the best intentions and checking the phone to the basket, you know, at the end of the school day and it's going to charge a mom and dad's room, it's like they find ways to take the phones or they, they find a tablet somewhere else that someone isn't using or they, you you know, so I think that it's complicated and it would be easy to say, oh, it's bad parenting, but it's not always <laughs> bad parenting, you know? Yeah. And I do think kids are living in this sort of bizarre, highly competitive time where parents are competitive with one another. 
Kids are competitive with one another from a very young age. They're constantly trying to see how they measure up, whether it's their report cards that are now more specific than ever at younger ages. You know, when I was in elementary school, I think you got like an S for satisfactory or an N for needs improvement, and that was about it. You know, now these kids know exactly where they stand and what their reading levels are and where they are in math. And, you know, and they compare them to other kids. You know, the report cards aren't even home before they've already been ripped open and compared with with other kids. And then, you know, sports culture went from being this healthy athlete, you know, outlet where kids could get together and learn how to play on a team. Well, now you have club sports year round, around the clock, late at night, long weekends. So, and, you know, what's different today, we know is that more families have two working parents or a single working parent, or, you know, families come in all shapes and sizes now. And it's very different than it was, you know, a few generations ago. So I understand why some experts like to look back and say, well, they had it all figured out in 1980, except that 2018 doesn't look like 1980. So it's it's always easy to go back and say they were doing bedtime better. We have to think about, well, what are the individual stressors that each family is up against? Every family is different. And that's what I help families do when I do family therapy is Instead of talking about the shoulds, let's talk about the obstacles. What's getting in the way of your nine-year-old getting 10 to 11 hours of sleep a night? Something's getting in the way. Let's talk about it. What's happening? Are you having trouble setting boundaries? Is your nine-year-old having trouble listening to boundaries and adhering to boundaries? Is it the sports that are getting in the way because it's too late at night? Well, what can we take away? Is it the culture of busy that keeps us all hyper-connected online but not connected in person? You know, let's look at all the factors that, that affects each individual family and start there. I like that. Yeah. Let's find the barrier to the family functioning in a healthy manner, emotionally, physically, sleep wise. And then and, and let's remove it. Let's let's find out what we can do collectively as a family. And when you talk about the competitive environment that kids are a part of in many realms, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, it reminds me of another point that you bring up in your book. You talk about a self-esteem baseline and you talk about self-esteem being uh the self-esteem is made up of relationships, appearance and body image, and then accomplishments, which really got me thinking about praise. It's interesting. You actually take a stance that's a little bit different from what I've heard some other experts talk about in terms of praise. There's a lot of notion now that kids are being overly praised. I'm thinking of of Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman. Uh, they had a book a few years ago called Nurture Shock, where they looked at how some kids are being told, good job, good job, good job, even when they're not doing very well. And so it's, it's falling flat. It's feeling phony. The kids are feeling that it's disingenuous. And the parents, of course, are coming at it from the best of intentions. Just, I know self-esteem is important. So I got to I got to try to bolster my kid's self-esteem with all this praise, but it's not working. And so you, uh, unlike some experts who are thinking, okay, let's praise genuinely, which I think we can all agree is a good idea, and be careful of saying good job for things that are really quite mediocre. <laughs> but you're not so sure that the kids are being overly praised, you mentioned. And so, and then you bring up the mindset research, which I love, of course, the Carol Dweck's research. But talk to us a little bit about maybe kids aren't overly praised. I have a lot of kids that sit in my office and come to my groups and feel like they can't do enough to earn any praise from their parents. I mean, just this week, I had a very young girl in my office 
um, just tears in her eyes, feeling like she can't get that feedback. It doesn't matter what she does. She doesn't get the feedback that she's craving. And she sees other kids getting it, her friends, you know, and she and that's what she wishes she got. So I think you know, it's so hard because years ago we had this big self-esteem movement and it was like, let's bolster self-esteem. And then everybody, and then it was like, that's not working. Okay. Nobody bolsters self-esteem anymore. We, I mean, talk about black and white thinking. We tend to (laughs) trends, you know, that hit the media, we tend to go one way or the other. And what I say is just be specific with your praise you don't need to praise every little thing that your kid does. I mean, they scribble one letter on a piece of paper. They haven't written a novel. You don't have to pretend they've written a novel, right? But, you know, when your kid does something that's kind or empathic or just, you know, you could tell that they really worked hard, praise that, you know, mention a specific, say, you know what, I love how you helped your little brother when he felt that was so nice of you to help him get up and and get a Band-Aid and, you know, you got to him before I could even get there. And wow, what a great sister. That's such a nice thing to do. I mean, point out those acts of kindness that they do, point out areas where they're really working hard, not the final. The problem with praise is we always praise the final product, the goals scored, the beautiful piece of art that we think is, you know, museum worthy, the A plus on the test. We always praise those things. Those are not the things to praise. The things to praise are the effort they put into things, the hard work that they did, the thing that they learned that was interesting and different. That's what you want to praise because then you're teaching your kids that it doesn't matter, you know, if you got an A plus. What matters is you learned something new and different in science and you told me all about it. And now I learned something new and different from your science. And that's great because it shows me that you really listened and you really learned. So try to find those things to praise instead of, you know, becoming praise avoiders and feeling like we have to toughen up kids by never giving them any feedback. I mean, I always say it feels good when people give you feedback. People come up to me on the street and say, hey, I read your book and I really loved it and it really helped me. That feels good. Do I need that person to say that to me? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm 43 years old and I'm going to be fine if I don't get praise every time I round a corner. But it always feels good when someone stops me to say, hey, you know what? I heard you on that podcast and something you said really sparked a thought in my head. And I just wanted to thank you for saying that. Like, I'm happy to hear that. And it, and it feels good to hear that. So if as adults, we know that it feels good to be praised, why would we take that away from children? You know, we, we have to think about it. If we like it, well, wouldn't it do something good for them too? Wouldn't it bolster them just for a moment so that they go back and work hard again at the next thing? Yeah, and exactly. And and praising character and, and, and pro-social behavior, like you mentioned, and praising process goals that I love how hard you worked on that instead of, mm-hmm. so what if they got an A plus or an A minus or, or, or a C or D if you saw them hustle? That's developing grit and helping them be more tenacious. And those are skills that are going to generalize outside of school and and carry them very far throughout life. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's not necessarily about not praising. It's about praising with intention and making sure that you're reinforcing Carol Dweck's research shows that if we keep praising outcome, we can establish a fixed mindset in our kids such that that they're only going to try uh, challenges that they're pretty sure they, they can accomplish and do well. And I will tell you, I see a lot of that right now really? where boys and girls alike, they come to me and they tell me I'm the best on the soccer team because I score the most goals. And then, well, what happens on Saturday when you don't score any goals because everybody has a bad game once in a while? 
I'm terrible. I stink. I'm not good anymore. I can't do this. I need to find a new thing. So I see a lot of that happening with grades, with sports, with a wide variety of just things, you know, theater, singing, music, all this stuff. Stop telling them they're the best at something, you know, praise the, I'm very careful. I have a nine-year-old son and he's very sporty and he loves all his sports and he's very passionate about (laughs) sports and he's very competitive. Um, But, you know, I always say to him, instead of at the end of the game, talking about the score or talking about something that he did that was great, I'll say things like, gosh, I really loved how your team was passing so well today in the basketball game. That made such a difference. You guys were really spread out and playing together. Mm -hmm. Talk about that stuff because that's how we teach kids to keep working toward their goals. Exactly. And to be a team player and not just to only be striving to be the superstar on the court, but to the the passing and, and, and to really look at those values that sports are instilling in our kids and to give them praise for cultivating and developing those values. The thing, I, I love this quote and I, I wrote it down that you say, it feels good to get a pat on the back. It feels even better when you know your strengths and can give yourself a pat on the back. And so the next step, of course, with the self-esteem movement that you mentioned earlier, where we were so concerned about giving our kids self-esteem is the reality we can't give anyone self-esteem. We can set up opportunities for a kid to develop his or her own self-esteem, but really that's an inside job and kids have to have the opportunity to kind of show themselves what they're made of and to have those opportunities to set goals, achieve them, and then like you say so nicely here, give themselves a pat on the back. That's right. And I, you know, one thing I find over and over again, when I, you can always tell the kids who know who they are and who are figuring out who they are as they grow, because I'll say to them, tell me what's great about you. And they'll say, well, I'm really nice and I'm pretty funny. I tell some good jokes and I'm good at drawing. So that's something I like to do when I relax. And I really like to read books and I like to recommend books to my friends. And they'll rattle off all these things that maybe don't seem like big, huge college application kind of things, right? But those are the ones who know their strengths. They know who they are and their self-esteem is growing because like you say, it's an inside job and they can look within and talk about who they are as people. They can talk about their character. They can talk about what that means to them. But when I look at other kids, I, I have other kids that'll say, tell me what's great about you and they freeze up and they can't tell me one thing. Or tell me what's great about you and they rattle off accomplishments, you know, goals scored, you know, what they got on their spelling test, what they got on their math test, that they have a four in math and it's the highest in the class, blah, blah, blah. Those are the kids that actually don't have the self-esteem because what they do is they hide behind accomplishments. That's what makes them important in the eyes of their parents or the adults in their lives who praise those things. So those are the things they rattle off. So it's really you know, important to give kids time to just be kids and explore who they are. And part of what's happening with kids right now is that technology is taking over. But another part of what's happening is that we have them so busy with adult-directed activities and activities that are resume builders that they don't have the time to sit around and draw and figure out if they like coloring or drawing or gardening or, you know, going for long walks in the park or, you know, just hanging out with friends. They don't have the time for that. And those are the things, those are the opportunities where they really figure themselves out and where they figure out what their strengths are. 
that's another area where we're seeing some really big differences. There's the competition environment. There's a bit of a pressure cooker in many subcultures. You know, they get out of preschool and parents are already worried about their college application process and where they're going to go and if they're going to get a top tier school. I mean, yeah. So the time and space for a kid to be a kid can be very few and far between in, in certain contexts. That's for sure. Everyone knows I love nothing more than a party, which is why I'm so excited to welcome our newest sponsor, Chaotic and Collected Garlands and Party Decor by Jess Downey. Jess creates hip and handmade party supplies. Check them out at chaoticcollectedinc.com. And if your party has a theme that is a little unconventional, Jess is your girl because she loves creating custom designs for your party. Say a hipster baby shower or a craft beer party or my annual wine and cheese soiree chaotic and collected another thing you bring up that you talk about with the self-esteem baseline is negative core beliefs and you you caution parents to be watching out for these can you give some examples of what that might look like for a parent who's again concerned about their kids self-esteem and they're hearing about this about praise and they're like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna be praising for process not outcome I'm gonna be praising for a growth mindset not a fixed mindset I got this but w- what else should they be looking for and you mentioned these negative core beliefs well, something that can happen, and you know, we're talking a lot about girls. One thing that can happen is when girls feel like they're isolated a lot, or they can't find their their right fit peer group, or maybe they thought they found their right fit, and then suddenly that group has moved away from them, and they're not with them anymore. A negative core belief that can sort of come out of that is, I'm not a good friend. I'm not someone people want to be with. So what happens with young children is they tend to really internalize their emotions. And especially when kids have not grown up in an environment where they've been encouraged to get their emotions out and label those feelings and talk about the triggers, they tend to take things on and they develop these beliefs about themselves. So a child who, let's say a child who is um, not particularly skilled at timed math tests, which are, you know, every kid has to do time tests at some point. And week after week, they can't pass that plus nine math test. That's, that's just where they petered out. They can't get past the plus nines. So the the core belief that they start to develop and internalize is, I'm terrible at math. I can't do this. And so then you get a math avoider. You know, the girl who has trouble finding a good friend, I'm not friendly. I'm not a good friend. No one wants to be around me. Well, she's going to isolate herself and stay away because she keeps failing and making friendships. So kids kind of take on situations that happen when they're in a, in a household where maybe they get shamed for their behaviors or their, you know, lack of doing their chores in a timely manner or, you know, the way that they act inside the home. If they feel shamed a lot, they start to feel like I'm not likable. My parents don't even like me. If they don't like me, why would anyone else like me? So that's another negative core belief that can develop. That kind of comes out of, you know, yelling. It's hard because I feel like we're always kind of focusing on these are the negative parent behaviors that cause all the problems, but we do have to think about, well, well, what are the things that can trigger those negative beliefs in the home? And, you know, one of them is yelling and one of them is shaming kids a lot. So um, if that's the kind of culture within the family, you're bound to have a kid who develops that belief that either I'm not likable or I'm not good enough. I'm never going to measure up. 
Yeah. What I love about, again, your book, uh, with these negative core beliefs, you provide a nice strategy and it's cognitive reframing, which when I was a therapist, I was a huge fan of the reframe and I use a reframe on myself pretty much every day, you know, because it's so powerful. (laughs) It's that psychological flexibility that just gives us more peace in our lives. When our, our plan goes awry, we don't have to be so rigidly stuck to that plan as the only outcome that's going to bring us any joy. So can you talk a little bit about a cognitive reframe and how, and this is in the girls can section, which is the portion of each chapter where you have these really tangible exercises that parents can do with their daughters and even their sons, of course, so much of this would be very useful for parents of sons as well. But can you talk about a cognitive reframe? So, for example, for the for the student who has struggles with the math tests and just really struggles with those timed one minute math tests and they're just not getting them all answered or they're not getting them all answered correctly and week after week and they're starting to feel like, I can't do this, I'm terrible at math. What you want them to do is state the negative belief, which is I can't do this, I'm terrible at math, I should just give up and never do math again. And then you want to help them reframe it in a positive way. So instead of I'm terrible at math and I should just give up, The reframe would be, I'm struggling with this right now. I can ask my teacher for help and practice a little bit every day and I will get better at it. So it's teaching kids how to take that negative thought, sit with it for a minute, listen to it. You know, we're too eager to push away negative emotions. We don't like kids to be sad. We don't like them to be stressed. We don't like them to be angry or frustrated. So we kind of push away all that negative stuff. But, you know, what we know is when kids constantly push that stuff away, it's like a volcano. It just gets stronger and bigger and hotter and louder and eventually it all blows. So instead of doing that, what we do is we ask them to sit with the negative thought, process it, talk about where it came from, and then reframe it and think about um, you know, a solution or a different way to look at the problem so that they can have that energy and that sort of emotional boost to say, okay, this has been really hard, but I'm figuring out another way to do it. And I know I can do this. And even again, that's why I love a reframe, because, you know, if I have a listener out there who's 65 years old, I mean, she can benefit from thinking about her own negative core beliefs, right, that she needs to reframe on a daily basis. And like you said, to look at, okay, say it, say it, and, and then think about it. Like, do I really believe this? And I know this sounds so corny, but the things we say in our heads, we wouldn't say to our worst enemies. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> That's the right. internal monologue can be so cruel. And of course, when the, you're talking about the, the school culture, so the girls are beating themselves up internally and they're getting some negative stuff with the bullying or whatever's going on in school. I mean, that's, that's rough stuff. And, and, and again, I, I appreciate that you're not trying to point the finger at the parents, but really the parents have the control. They are the mature ones. They are the ones who can change the tone of the household and with all these great activities, sit down with their daughter and help their daughter change her own tone and the way she treats herself and starting with the cognitive distortions that she's locked into and to teach her even at an early age. You don't have to lock into that way of thinking. There is power if you don't. And he, let me teach you a tool and maybe to tell her, I have to do this myself. So it's something you'll always work on. You know, we can have all these positive experiences, but those negative experiences are ones we remember and the ones that we ruminate. Yeah. About, you know, it's just, and then so this is part of the human condition. And so what I love is that you're teaching some really effective strategies that adults use to stay happy and hopeful and positive. And you're teaching these skills to parents to then be able to teach them to their daughters. 
Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I'd love to connect with you on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. Here I share my thoughts on love and life through original quotes and images. I'd love to have you join the conversation. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. You can find me live tweeting my favorite shows, This Is Us, Will and Grace, and My Guilty Pleasure. All shows Bachelor Nation. On Facebook, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. There you can read my blog, see where I'm speaking, and find links to others' podcasts when I'm a guest on their show. We'll probably wrap up now because this has been a great conversation, but we're getting down uh, in our time. One of the points that I wrote down from your book, you're encouraging parents to be very mindful in even the most kind of throwaway comments that they might make in a way to be what they would think protective or supportive. Because you mentioned a time when your daughter said to you, she said, hey, mom, when you say be careful, it makes me think you don't think I'm strong enough. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was a, that was a punch <laughs> to the gut. I was like, <laughs> yeah. but how many parents in the history of you know since the the, the dawn of time have said, "Honey, be careful," <laughs> meaning it with all the best yeah. love and support and and protection. And it's right. And in fairness, um, you know, not that I need to defend myself, but she, you know, this is I have two kids, and one takes every chance in the world, and one weighs the risks very cautiously, and she's the one who takes every chance. So, you know, a lot of times I would usher the be careful when she's climbing up the outside of the banister on the spiral staircase or, you know, doing something else that could potentially go very, very wrong. Um, but, you know, I always appreciated that she brought that to me because I realized this is a kid who is strong. She actually is an exceptional climber. I'm not sure where that will get her in life, but it's it's a strength that she has. So, you know, for me to cut that down and say, be careful, be careful every single time was weighing on her and making her feel like I didn't think she was capable. So, you know, I learned how to reframe my (laughs) own thoughts. And instead of saying, be careful every single time, I'll say like, oh, let's talk about the risks, (laughs) you know, or, hey, that looks really fun. Remember to hold on tight, you know, so, you know, but sometimes that's, that's just it. And I hear a lot of that from different kids where sometimes it's those small comments that you wouldn't think mattered are the ones that stick with them for whatever reason. Right. Obviously, it struck me because I think my parents probably told me to be careful like 7 million times growing up and I never once took it in any other way than (laughs) mom and dad want me to be safe. (laughs) But your daughter with her her unique skill sets and she's thinking I'm strong and I'm capable and why would mom suggest otherwise in any way, shape or form? And you're thinking, but I'm not (laughs) suggesting otherwise. I'm just doing what moms do. I'm just saying, please don't split your head open. Okay. <laughs> That's about it. But yeah, I want to uh, remind listeners that the book is called No More Mean Girls, Katie Hurley, LCSW, a guide for parents of girls ages three to 13. So much great stuff in this. Katie Hurley, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. You can find Katie on Facebook at Katie Hurley LCSW. Katie is K-A-T-I-E, Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y, L-C-S-W. On Instagram and Twitter, Katie's at Katie F. Hurley. So the love and life hack for this week is no more mean girls. 
We can all make an effort, whether we have daughters ourselves or kids that we mentor or kids on our street or anyone that we're around, we can make an effort by reading books like Katie Hurley's, by being intentional about checking in with kids and being careful about technology. Because as we know, so much of what's going on in the mean girl culture is happening via technology. Thanks for joining me today. And until next time, make it a great week. Dr. Karen Love and Life is produced by Chip Gregory, senior producer Michelle Musso, and host and executive producer Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. <laughs>